chapter number four. I've heard it been said before that Hebrews tells us who's supposed to make the coffee in the house. I don't know. Some of you will get that later. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, but I don't think that that's the reason why Hebrews is in the Bible, but somebody thought it was funny at some point to make a little meme about Hebrews, and that was the one that that uh, ended up being the result of it. So Hebrews chapter number four this morning. Um, again, we're just continuing a, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews and trying to unfold and unpack what the Lord has in his word for us to, um, to, grow, to grow by. And, and ultimately, that's the reason why God's word is given to us is that we might uh, see God in all of his glory um, through his word and in his word, and that we might grow in, in love with him and uh, grow in our faith and grow in our trust and, uh, and just learn to live lives that are reflective of, of his character. And not just his character as some kind of an outside event, but his character as an in, inward living being inside of us, that, that the spirit of God lives inside of us and therefore there are certain fruits that result from God's spirit living inside of us. And one of those fruits is what we see here in chapter three and four of this book, and that's the idea of being restful, of being, being a, a restful person. And we'll, we'll unfold that a little bit further, but if you wanna join me, I'm gonna read the first 11 verses of this uh, fourth chapter in Hebrews, and then we'll just work to unpack it together. The Bible says, therefore, and the word therefore is there to uh, point us to the previous passages of Scripture. Um, and in, in your time, if you want to look back at that, you're welcome to. We covered that a little bit last week. But he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering into his rest uh, still stands, let us, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished before the foundation of the world. Um, just a note, this verse is a very difficult verse. Um, matter of fact, uh, I was a couple weeks ago just listening to a couple of messages online that come from this text and uh, the comments were made that this is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the Bible to, to um, exposit. So it's a very difficult passage. And this verse in and of itself um, is a very difficult verse. It talks about in, in verse number three, it talks about those who believed and entered this rest. And then it says, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And so you have these people entering this rest and you have the Lord talking about swearing in his anger that they would not enter his rest. And then you have in the latter part of that verse, it says that even though the works were already finished before the foundation of the world, and even though the works of them entering into this rest that God talks about were finished, they were complete, um, there were some who entered that rest and some who did not enter that rest. And so it, we'll, we'll unfold that here a little bit later, um, but I wanted to just kind of 
point that out, that you have these people who have entered, are entering this rest of the Lord, and you have a group of people who are not entering this rest. And, uh, and we'll find out why that is. He goes on to say in verse number four, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. In other words, all of the works of God were completed in those six days. And he's not creating anything new today. Everything that is happening today is a result of his creation that he finished in six days. And, and uh, we're benefiting from those things today. And he says, and uh, God rests on the, on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he says... Or he said, they shall not enter my rest. And I just want to meditate on that again for just a moment. He says that the works have been completed for people to enter into his rest. And then at the same time, he says, they will not enter my rest. And he says it in, 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 in context of the Old Testament. He says it in anger. In, 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 you'll remember in, um, in the Exodus, the people of Israel would not trust God. They didn't trust him when it came to bread. They didn't trust him when it came to water. They didn't trust him when it came to entering the promised land. They didn't trust the Lord. And this is a product of that. The Lord says to them in anger, you will not enter my rest. And the reason why they will not enter his rest is because they would not rest. He tells us that in Isaiah 30 and verse number 15. He says to them, in quietness and in rest you would be saved, but you were not willing and we, we live, folks, we, this, this passage of Scripture is not just something that was written thousands of years ago. We live in this day and age. We, we live where they lived. We live in a restless society. I, I was speaking with a young man in, in, um, in the L.A. area when I was down there for classes, and he just came up to me, and he wanted to talk about seminary. He wanted to talk about these different things, and he, he said to me, he's like, I don't have any time because I'm... I'm working uh, upwards of 16 to 20 hours a week at my job, and I sleep very little, and, and this, is the, this is the expectation of the culture. We're not a restful people. We want to be active. We want to be moving. We want to be doing. And if, we don't, if we're not active and moving and doing, we're not, we don't feel like we're, 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 we're valuable. The Lord says to be still and know that I am the Lord. It's in these restful moments, it's in these times of faith, it's in these times of trust, it's in these times of dependence that God does his greatest work. He goes on to say, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, to enter into this rest, and those who formerly received the good news uh, failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day or another day and says today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. So after saying all of the stuff previously, you will not enter my rest. Although all of the works were completed for you to enter my rest, you will not enter my rest. Then he comes and makes the promise again. He, he reiterates the promise. And what is the promise? Is that today... If you hear the voice of God, if you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you, then don't harden your hearts. Respond to the Spirit of God. Respond to the voice of God inside of you. As the Spirit of God is awakened inside of us, that is when we can respond, and that is how we respond. 
He says, here's the promise again. Even though you might be one of those people that's walked through life and you've been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to rest in Christ. And I'm not just talking about a saving rest. I'm talking about a practical daily rest. A life that is full of restfulness because we know that we serve a sovereign God. We know that we serve a God who is in control of every aspect of our life, that nothing happens in our life without him either sovereignly allowing it to happen or sovereignly orchestrating it to happen. There is a rest that comes from trusting that. Yes, that type of trust will save you, because Jesus Christ saves those who place their faith in him, but that kind of rest will also sustain you to live a life separated and devoted to him. So he says, here's the offer again. Here's the offer again. And I I love the fact that God is the God of second chances and third chances, and I don't know how many chances you went through before you came to know the Lord, but that's who our God is. That's what he does. He's about second chances. He's, He's a loving God, a compassionate God. And he goes on to say in verse number eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter this rest or to enter that rest so that no one might fall short by the same sort of disobedience. So let's just walk through this passage of Scripture together. We'll do a little bit of review from last week, and then we'll, we'll get into the, the main context of this morning's message. We want to remember that the Scripture talks about rest in such a way as, as to define the, the characteristics of a true believer. Um, somebody who is a true believer is somebody who is a restful person, and they, they're resting in the sovereignty of God, resting in the good, goodness of God. And on the other hand, somebody who is religious might be resting in some type of a work that they've accomplished. Um, The scriptures are very clear that there's a distinction between somebody trusting in works to get them into favor with God and somebody resting in Christ to bring about favor with God. Somebody who is working to gain God's kindness and somebody who is resting because they have God's kindness. So there's there's this... distinction that's taking place all throughout Scripture and and also in this passage of Scripture as well. Rest can be defined in these ways, deliverance from the need to work for salvation, deliverance from the need to work to have favor with God. We no longer have to work to get favor with God. We no longer or we don't have to work to get salvation from God because it is a gift It's not something that we earn or deserve. It's something that he gives to us freely. It can also be defined as a freedom from worry, stress, and frustration. The word actually means a lying down to be settled, fixed, or stable. And I wrote this down as well. It's a freedom from sin as well. Some people think of of restfulness as this liberty to do whatever we want, but this This idea of this liberty to do whatever we want only leads us back into the sin that ultimately brings the bondage. It is sin that leads us to be stressful. It is sin that leads us to be worried. 
So by entering back into that sinfulness, we're only bringing on ourselves those things that cause us not to live a, a restful life. The Lord talks about righteousness exalts a nation, or righteousness in, in Romans 5 is what brings about this restfulness. It's living in that. This restfulness is a result of, uh, first of all, for a believer, it's a result of death. Ultimate rest for a believer will come when we, when we leave this world. But there is a rest to be had today, and that rest is the result of salvation. It's a rest that we experience by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned last week in verse number one that this rest is a promise, okay? This rest is something that God has promised us. It is a guarantee. As much as God's character um, is true and accurate, as much as God cannot lie, according to Titus 1 and verse number 2, this rest is a promise that God has made to his people, this restfulness. We also learn in verse number 1 that this rest is available. It says that the, the promise of rest still remains. It means there's still some to be had. There's still some people to have it, and there's still some rest to be had. It's, it's still available to us. It tells us as well that this rest comes through the gospel. It comes as a result of the good news. In Romans 10 and verse 17, the Bible says, Now faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So in other words, the more we're familiar with God's character, the more we're familiar with God's word, the more we're familiar with God's promises, the more capable, the more capable we are in resting in him. So it's, it's, it's digging into God's word, it's knowing God through his word so that we can grow in restfulness. We know what his capabilities are, we know what his promises are, and therefore, we don't have to live a life that's full of worry and frustration because we know who our God is. And that's why he uses the term throughout this passage, the, the good news came to them as well as it came to us. It's, all of this restfulness is a result of the good news of the Lord. And ultimately, the good news is very, very simple. It is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. That's the good news. And that he was buried and that he rose Three days later, and he was victorious over, over death and over hell and over Satan, that Jesus Christ won. And Jesus Christ didn't win for his benefit. He won for our benefit. He won to bless us. He, he won to save us. He won to bring us liberty and freedom in him. He did it for us. That's the good news. And so the reason why we, we can walk through life in, in rest and in confidence and in peace is because we know that the, the ultimate salvation has been accomplished for us. And we can live in the confidence that Jesus Christ satisfied everything necessary for our perfect righteousness. That now I can stand in the presence of God and be accepted by him based upon the merits of Jesus and not based upon my own merits. That's the good news. And the good news ought to bring us not to a, a, a frustrating life, but it ought to bring us to a restful life. All of these things are based on the, on the good news. This rest is available. It's offered today through the gospel. He tells us in verse number, um, at the end of verse number one, he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The emphasis here is this idea of this fatalistic mentality 
the, the verse literally, literally says, let us be afraid lest anyone conclude themselves to have fallen short. Lest somebody come to a place in their life that they, 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 they make this conclusion in their mind that I cannot be saved. I cannot have this rest. He's warning against that. He's cautioning against that. He's especially cautioning those who have the gospel, who know the truth, in regards to how that they present the truth. He says, let us fear lest they conclude that they have fallen short. Lest they conclude that they cannot be saved. Let us fear for them. That, that in so many ways, ought to, ought to provoke a passion in our hearts for lost people. And also a passion in our hearts for how we present the gospel to those lost people who do not know the Lord. He says, let us fear lest we should seem to have failed to, lest, lest you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now we come to this portion. That was a review from last week. Now we come to this portion. I want to give you a few thoughts um, that I think are valuable to understanding how the promises of God become personal to us. Here he says, let's just, let's just unfold it together. He says, for good news came to us just as it did to them. Okay, the good news is the gospel. So if we, could, if we were gonna take the church this morning and let's just say we were gonna split it down the middle and we'll say that, that the gospel was preached to everybody. So you're, you're all hearing the same exact message, right? But half of the congregation benefits from it. The other half of the congregation, they hear exactly the same message, they hear the exact same truths, but they do not benefit from it at all. There's no, there's no impact in their, in, their, in their life based upon the truth that was delivered. So while the truth of, God, of Christ was delivered to all the people, the message only had an impact on a certain group of those people. Okay? So therefore, what we learn is the message, message and the promises of, of God are not enough in and of themselves. Lots of people know the truth. Lots of people know God's word. Lots of people study God's word. Uh, Matthew 13 talks about the, the scribes uh, studying it to know the deep things of it, but God has not given them eyes to see or ears to hear. So lots of people know the truth of God's word, but the, the difference is, is there's a group of people who actually benefit from it. There's a group of people who are actually impacted by it, that it actually changes their life. It alters the way that they function. It alters the way that they live because the word of God has penetrated their heart and changed their direction. There are people on both sides of, the, of that spectrum so the gospel is preached, the promises of God are communicated, and there are some who respond one way and others who respond another way, and their response is what determines their response is what determines whether or not that truth impacts them. Okay, if, if I have two kids living, if I have two kids that are playing in the street and I walk out to them and I say to both of them, there's possibility you're going to get hit by a car. There's a likelihood that you're going to get hit by a car. You cannot play in the street. There's danger here. Now, they both have the truth, right? So what about that truth helps them 
if they both remain in the street and do nothing about it? It doesn't help them at all, does it? They'll know the truth, and when they do, if they do get hit by a car, they'll know the truth was given to them, and then they'll be held accountable for the truth. But the truth does not change them until they hear the truth and get up and walk off of the street. The same thing applies to this, these promises of God. He says that they all heard the promises. The good news came to all of us. The message of grace came to all of us. The message of salvation came to all of us. We all got the same message. But what was unique about the one group? He says, for, for good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. And the word just literally means it didn't impact them. It didn't change them. And here's why. Because, it was not, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, the truth, it's a Matthew 13 scenario with the, with the parables. The truth did not fall on readied soil. The, food, the, the, the truth did not fall on a soil that was ready to produce fruit. In other words, it was, it was falling on hard soil. It was falling on stony ground or it fall on, fell on <coughs> a thorny ground. It fell into a, a soil that wasn't ready. And that's the soil is representation of our hearts. So the truth is preached. When the truth hits faith, when the truth hits faith, it immediately does What? It immediately springs forth with fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But what you see is not just a semblance of life, but the Bible says you see fruits from that life. When faith is connected to truth, the promises of God, when somebody who is in faith is connected to the truths of God's word, it will immediately bear fruit. Those truths will bear fruit in that person's life. And it's because faith was connected to the promises of God. Faith was joined with the promises of God. You could, we could look at it in the perspective of a, of a seed. A seed does no good in and of itself. You take that seed and you place that seed into the ground and it connects with that soil and it connects with that water and it connects with that fertilizer. What you do is you have life and you have fruits. But that seed isn't going to do you any good. It's not going to do any good for a farmer to come out here and, and, and seed our driveway because it's hardened. He says here, everybody hears the same truth. Everybody knows the truth, but it's not responded to. It's not mixed with. It's not married to faith. And because it's not mixed with or married to faith, it does not produce any fruit. It does not produce rest. It does not produce salvation. And he's going to go here and he's going he's to unfold this even further and say, even though all the works are accomplished... Even though everything has been done from the foundation of the world, even though the works were accomplished in the six days that God created things, it still doesn't matter. If your faith, if faith is not joined with the promises of God, they will be unfruitful. 
There must be a connection between the two. So if you're taking notes, the first thought this morning is faith is necessary. Faith is necessary for there to be salvation. Faith is necessary for there to be rest. Faith is necessary for there to be growth, for there to be maturity, for there to be fruits. Faith must be present. Again, you can throw as much seed as you want on a hard ground, you will get no fruit. You can seed it and seed it and seed it and seed it. Just like people who sit in churches Sunday after Sunday and they receive truth after truth after truth, but it never is met with faith. It's never joined with faith. It's never married to faith, and therefore it never produces any fruits. It must be joined with faith. It must be connected to faith. Hearing the good news is not enough. It does not benefit us unless it is joined with faith. And again, he goes on to describe those who have the finished work, he says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way that God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. So God accomplished all of his works necessary for us to rest. And what's the next phrase, what's the next phrase say? And again, this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. So we can have all of the knowledge in the world about God's word. We can have all of the knowledge in the world about spirituality, about religion. We can feel really good about what we know. The problem is, is if what we know doesn't make it into our hearts, it will not change us. And if the gospel does not change us, there is no salvation for those who have not been altered or impacted by the gospel. So here's what he's saying here. He's saying that the gospel, the truth, the promises of God, and the person, the individual to whom those promises are made, they're connected, they're brought together. The Bible uses the term, they're joined, they're fixed, they're glued together by, by faith. What makes, a promise is that what makes a promise of God that's made to a person, what makes it effective, if you will, is faith to walk in it. It's what combines an individual to a promise. And we can read God's promises all day, but if we don't walk in those promises, they do not impact the way that we live our lives. The good news is personalized, or it is mixed with, it is united to, it is glued together with the promises. A person is glued together with the promises of God by faith. And this is the only way that it's possible. That's why he says, again, he says, because they have not been united by faith with those who listen, for we have believed, for we who have believed enter into this rest. We who have faith or trust the Lord. The good news is personalized by faith. And let's look at a few thoughts on this. Faith takes a promise and makes it personal by believing and applying it. It connects it to it. Faith is a gift from God. We want to also make sure that you understand that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the Bible says, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works so that no man can boast. And the faith that we, the faith 
The faith that the gospel hits that springs forth into fruit is a gift from God. It's a part of regeneration. It's when the Lord awakens our heart to receive the gospel message. And once the gospel message hits that awakened soil, or what we would call that uh, ready soil by the Holy Spirit of God, he, it hits that soil, it, pr- it produces fruit. And some people produce more fruit than other people, but what we know is, is that when, when, when the gospel hits that faith soil, there will, be, there will be some fruits from that. There will be some changes from that. The Lord will produce a fruit. So, but we want to also note that this is a gift that God gives us. It's not something that you muster up on your own. Salvation has nothing to do with us at all. It has everything to do with God. God gives us the soil through which he plants his own seed into it, and he bears fruit. And that's why Galatians 5 calls it the fruit of the Spirit. It's his fruit being born in our lives. It's, it's his soil. It's his work. Everything, everything that has to do with salvation is about the Lord. It's not about us at all. Lord, give me the soil to receive the message of the gospel. That should be our prayer. Lord, give me a heart that's receptive to your truths. It's the, that should be the prayer that we pray in regards to salvation. But listen, that should be the prayer that we pray each and every day of our lives. Lord, give me a heart that is receptive to the promises of your word. Because otherwise, I'm not going to walk in restfulness today. I'm going to walk in, in worry, frustration, whatever might, be the, whatever might be the case. Faith is a gift from God. It is the soil that when the good news falls onto it, immediately produces fruit. So the good news by itself cannot save. The good news mixed with faith or mixed with the proper soil does save. And it does change us. Faith is a gift from God. And then lastly, faith is evidenced by works. Look with me at James, if you would, in your Bibles. Just one book uh, past the book of Hebrews to your right. So this, 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 this promises of God, when they're, combined with, when they're combined with faith, they produce fruit, and that fruit that they produce is a, it's a restfulness, it's a kindness, it's a, a Galatian 5, the fruits of the Spirit. When it, when it produces those fruits that manifests itself in our lives, and that brings confirmation that the promises of God have been mixed with faith. He goes, he goes here to say in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is is dead. In other words, you can look at this in, in three, almost three steps. You have the, or not three steps, but three ingredients. You have the promises of God, you have faith, and then you have works. And they must go in that order. You have the promises of God and faith being mixed together. Both of them are gifts from God. Both of them are, are God's work. They're mixed together. They create salvation. They accomplish a changed life. And then you have works that is a manifestation of that changed life. 
He's like, if you don't have those, if you don't have those fruits of the faith and the promises of God, then what good is the promises of God? It's, it goes back to the kids in the streets. What good is the knowledge that you're going to get hit, you could possibly get hit by a car? What good is that knowledge if they don't get up and get out of the street? Right? That's exactly what he's saying here in James 2. What good is the knowledge of the promises of God if they don't impact you? If they don't change you, if they don't get rooted in your heart to where that there's fruit being born, what good do they have? And the answer, according to the scriptures here in James 2, is they have, they have, no, they have no good. There's no good of them at all. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that we actually are held accountable for the information that we have and we don't act upon it. Again, the, back to the scenario of playing in the street. If you know that what you're doing is wrong and that you could possibly be in danger, then that sits with you if something bad does happen. If the truth does come true, if the information does come to fruition, you are now dealt with not only the product of the of the whatever happens, but you're also dealt with the fact that you knew that you should have gotten out of the road. The gospel is the truth of, of, of Christ. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel. It doesn't do us any good unless it's mixed with faith, and if it's mixed with faith, it produces fruits. It always produces fruits. He says in verse number 18, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe God is one. This is serious stuff. If it's not mixed with faith, it's it's, it's to have all of that knowledge and not have it mixed with faith, it's not going to impact you. For salvation. He goes on in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that just simply means that it's, it's, it's worthless. Promises of God not mixed with faith is worthless. There must be an embracing of it. Yes, go to God's word, read what he says, read what he says about Jesus Christ and forgiveness and justification and and sanctification and salvation. Read all of the things that God says in his word, but listen, at the end of the day, believe them. At the end of the day, embrace them. Yes, for eternal salvation, but also for, for how do I get through today? How do I get through this moment in my life? That is exactly what the author is saying here. It's like, even though all of the works is done, if you do not mix the promises of God, that means that that the promises of God, everything necessary for them to be fulfilled is, is accomplished. But if it is not mixed with faith, it is worthless. It must be mixed with belief. It must be mixed with an embrace. And then it will naturally produce fruits, and those fruits will be those fruits will be life-changing. Let's go on. So first of all, faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. Number two, the obstacle is unbelief. He says um, in verse number uh, four, for he has some 
somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way that God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore there remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disbelief. He uses the same phrase in another verse here in this passage. But ultimately, what he's saying is, um, is that because of disbelief, they will not enter into his rest. And it's an interesting term that's used here because it's actually interchangeable with disobedience. Matter of fact, some of your versions might actually say disobedience. Other versions might say disbelief. The idea is, is that disobedience and disbelief are the same. They, they go hand in hand. They're connected. Disbelief in God leads to disobedience. And disobedience is the direct, direct result of not believing. The obstacle to a person coming to the Lord is not the promises of God. The obstacle to a person coming to the Lord is unbelief. All throughout scriptures we are, the Bible says in, in John 3, that we are condemned because we did not believe in the Son. We refused to accept what God's word said about Jesus Christ. We rejected the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of, of God's son for our sins. We refused to embrace that by faith. And because we refuse to accept that by faith, we are ultimately condemned. John 3.36 actually combines the phrases when he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, unbelief and disobedience are the same thing. They're married together. The obstacle is that we don't believe the Lord. And it is faith that connects us to the promises of God. It is necessary. So the obstacle is unbelief. We'll notice in verse number six, not only that, but the, the importance. At the end of the day, there's an importance of the sovereignty of God and second chances. God says that there is still an availability. As he says in verse number six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. In, in other words, there's still an offer of salvation. There's still an offer of rest. That, that is still being offered today. The gospel is still being true, uh, preached. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still being delivered. If you will embrace it by faith, if you will believe it, if you will cling to Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, if you will reject, repent of the idea of being able to work your way into God's favor and embrace that Jesus Christ satisfied God's judgment on you for you, if you will embrace that, you are connecting the promises of God to yourself. And you're not doing it on your own merits. That faith is a gift from God. That faith that connects those two things together is God's gift. That's why I say, pray that God would give you the soil to receive the truth. The importance of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty says there's still people to be saved and there's still enough there's still enough rest available to be delivered. So the message remains. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter number 11, the promise is made that this gospel will continue to be offered to this world until the fullness of the number of Gentiles is brought in. 
In other words, God is going to continually offer the gospel of salvation to Gentiles until he, he knows who's going to come in. Until it is complete, he will continue to offer the gospel of grace. And listen to me this morning. This is your opportunity. This is your chance. This is God calling you. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear the Spirit of God calling you that my son died in your place, took, his, took your sins on himself and resurrected the third day and he can save you. If you hear that call in your hearts, do not harden your hearts, but bow your knee and, and, and embrace that salvation. If you're here today and you're sitting in the congregation and you say, I know that I'm saved, but I just don't have any rest in my life, the, the same principle applies to you. Take the promises of God and get a hold of them and bow your knee before them. They will give you rest. They will give you peace. They will give you comfort. Do not harden your hearts. This passage is not just written to unbelievers. The message is to both groups. When you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts, but bow your knee. Bow your knee. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if the children of Israel would have bowed their knee to the Lord? Forty years of wilderness wandering, not experienced. Promised land experienced. And we know that God has a sovereign plan in all of these things. But I wonder sometimes how many wilderness wanderings I've gone on because I didn't bow my knee. Bow our knee to the Lord. When he speaks to us through his word, don't harden your hearts Bow your knee to him. The last thing that he says here in this text, he says it's still, the offer is still there. I, I'm, I'm thankful that the offer is still there. He says, um, since therefore there remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints another day. I love that. I'm so thankful for that. Again, he points another day and says today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. He's such a forgiving God, isn't he? He doesn't even act as if we rejected what he offered us yesterday. He just says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. So if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from the works of God, the works that God has did for us, the works as God did from his. And then he goes on to say, let us therefore strive to enter this rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse number 11 is just simply a plea, and I, I make that same plea to you. He says to strive to enter that rest. And it's a, it's a salvation rest. If you're not saved this morning, you don't know Christ as your Savior, it is a cry to you, it is a plea to you to strive to enter into the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word strive does not imply that you work. It's, it, that kind of would be a, 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 it would kind of go against what we're trying to, what the Bible is trying to say here. The, the emphasis is, is to, is to um, be diligent about entering into this rest. Be serious 
about entering into this rest. This rest is super, super important. Some people think because they know the promises of God that they've entered into this rest. Everything about their life would say that they're completely unrestful, but because they know the promises of God, they think that they've entered into that rest. The problem is there might be the missing of faith. Wouldn't it be a shame to end up in Matthew 7 where many will stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this in your name and that in your name? Didn't we know it all, Lord? And the Lord says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting judgment. Wouldn't that be horrible? What's missing? It's faith. It's depending on the Lord Jesus Christ for everything. And that faith manifests itself in works. The plea is, if you're one of those people this morning that is, is not walking in rest, you believe that you're saved, but you're not, not walking in rest, go to Christ. He will give you rest. But if you're one of those who is not saved, it says, count it a serious thing to enter into this rest. Let me close, close with a couple of scriptures he tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is Jesus speaking. He says, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He tells us in Luke 13, 24, strive, same, same idea here, strive, be, be serious, be diligent about entering in through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. And then in Matthew 7, it says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is difficult that leads to everlasting life, and those who find it are few. There's nothing more important than to see the promises of God married to faith in your life. And to see the fruits flowing from that as being a restfulness in Christ. I close with 2 Corinthians 6.2, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is that favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning that we have this rest offered to us. is a manifestation of your kindness and your grace and your forgiveness for all of the times that we've rejected that rest, all of the time that we've trusted in ourselves, that we've tried to work our way into peace and favor, and, and yet you continue to offer us this real rest that's not built around anything that we do, but built totally on what you have done for us in Christ. I pray this morning that if there's someone here that has not embraced that, those truths, those saving truths, that they would do it this morning. 
that they would find Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection sufficient for themselves to come into your presence and be in favor. If there's those that are here this morning that do not live in that rest, maybe they are proclaimers of Christ, but maybe not living it out. I pray that you would bring conviction and that you would help them to see those changes, Lord God, as you can, only you can give. We pray that everyone would leave this morning restful in Christ. We love you.